0: Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Chris Sloan, the Chief Operating Officer of Capital Medical Center in Olympia, Washington. Capital Medical Center is a 107-bed hospital with about 600 employees it is part of life point health a for-profit hospital system headquartered in brentwood tennessee chris joined capital medical center after retiring from the army medical service corps in september of 2019 with 23 years of service as a military medical logistician and hospital administrator during his service he deployed to kosovo in iraq and ended his career as the chief operating officer for Madigan army medical center, one of the army's largest hospitals. In this podcast, we talk about Chris's military career, transition to leadership in the civilian sector, his leadership philosophy. And since this interview was originally recorded in October of 2020, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. I hope you enjoy listening to Chris's story and if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you might be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening. And here is Chris Sloan. So Chris, welcome to the podcast.
1: We're glad to be here, Mark. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to chatting because we have a a military connection. You are a graduate of the MHA program that I used to teach into when I was in the army. So I want to start by just kind of asking, what drew you to the military?
1: So unlike or not unlike many folks, the military was not necessarily on my radar screen as I was moving through high school. But into college, my parents said, here's your graduation gift, we're going to give you one year of college, the rest is on you. And so I had to figure out how to how to shape uh, staying at the University of Tulsa. And I was introduced to the ROTC program by a mutual friend. They said, hey, we'll give you some dollars if you take this military science class. And I said, that sounds like a win-win and uh, enjoyed it. And really, it, they told me they could put together a scholarship packet. And I ended up getting a ROTC scholarship to cover my last years in college. And, and that, that started me down my pathway uh, towards becoming a Medical Service Corps officer.
0: So you were majoring in, I think I saw, biochemistry? That's correct. Did you have an idea that you, that sounds like pre-med or something along those lines, was that?
1: Yeah, very much was interested in becoming a doctor and uh, the practice of medicine. And so I was doing the the requisite pre-med coursework. And when it came to the time to decide on a commissioning and a core to join I did not have an educational delay in hand, which would allow me to apply and go to medical school. So I said, "Well, since I can't be a, a doctor right now, we'll choose something that's pre- pretty close. We'll just give this Medical Service Corps thing a shot." And uh, ended up being such a great uh, turn of events. I, I really fell into an enjoyment of the support role that the Medical Service Corps does from from its initial phases of a, a career in as a Medical Service Corps officer doing the support to the infantry and the deployable operational side of the house and then culminating my career and transitioning through the Baylor program and doing hospital administration. Couldn't have drawn it up any better. It just worked out so fantastic for myself, for my family, and just was so grateful for what the Army and and a career in the Army has been able to do for us.
0: And so uh, I didn't say, but you are, you did retire from the army. You did, uh, a little over 20 years.
1: Yep. 23 years in, in the army.
0: So let me, so let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about your first, your first job out, out of the military. You've been, uh, with Capital medical center, uh, since, uh, since fall of, of 19. So you're going on a little over a year. Uh, Tell, so you're in, uh, Capital Medical Center is in Olympia, Washington. Um, for people who are not familiar with the area that you're operating out of, can you tell us a little bit about Olympia and kind of maybe how it influences your organization's mission and maybe relationship to the community?
1: Sure. So Olympia, Washington is is in the Pacific Northwest. And I, I often tell people, oh, I'm in Seattle, because people know where Seattle is. It's way up there on the the top left of the United States, and uh, it is south, it is actually south and west of Seattle. The Puget Sound comes down, and we're at the south, uh, south, south portion of that Puget Sound. But Olympia is a, a town that, that is the largest town between uh, us and the Pacific Ocean. And so for Capital Medical Center, one of, one of the pieces that it has to look at is as healthcare evolves and those community hospitals, those, those acute care uh, platforms that are present and we're supported, as those are losing their ability to recruit and retain specialty services, those specialty services requirements are collapsing to the next levels. And as the largest hospital between us and the, the Pacific Ocean, we're starting to see that here. And so our relationship with our community is an important one. We have community members. We had the former mayor on our board. We've got lots of active community members that are on our board, in addition to uh, surgeons and, and physicians on our board that keep us engaged with our community. And that engagement helps us gauge our support, our efforts, and and really helps us connect with those that we take care of each and every day in the facility. So we, you can't separate a hospital from the community that, it, it, that it, it supports. And our engagement with the community is really key. And one of our strategic initiatives is, is, is building upon that relationship and better supporting and being more visible. So,
0: so tell me a little bit about, or tell us a little bit about Uh, Capital Medical Center. So maybe give me the give me the the broad brush um, description, maybe number of beds, number of employees, some some of that kind of statistics.
1: Sure. So Capital Medical Center is one of two large hospitals in in Olympia. It is it is not the market leader. It actually has a fraction of the market. We have 107 beds, but we do hold many specialties. We have employed uh, surgeons, as well as multiple primary care platforms, infectious disease, a robust radiology uh, platform. We've got about 600 employees that are here. Of course, we have multiple folks that work part time to help support that And it, it is a complex organization in the way that it supports uh, in as a smaller hospital can it does not have the full gamut of specialty care that a level one trauma center would have so there are some balances on our capabilities we have a limited size of an emergency department um, simply because that's how it was built 35 years ago and so uh, we've got uh, uh, an organization that supports the community and and is able to take care of those uh, without question uh, on our on, on a healthcare front.
0: So so let's talk about you. Let's talk about your role. Um, uh, what So as the COO, how do you fit into the leadership structure uh, at Capital Medical Center?
1: So the, the leadership structure of Capital is not unlike most for-profit or not-for-profit organizations with the chief executive officer. And he has a few chiefs that report to him. We have a chief operating officer, a chief financial officer, a chief nursing officer, and a chief quality officer. We do not have a full-time chief medical officer because of the size, although we have a physician that helps us uh, with our quality and physician engagement uh, on, uh, that works in the quality department. Okay. So, my role as a Chief Operating Officer is the backup to the CEO and is charged with the process and the well-functioning of the facility writ large, and I believe that this is not unlike the function of the Chief Operating Officer in the military healthcare system, although the, the responsibilities are, are somewhat different, and um, some of those differences mostly revolve on what departments report to the chief operating officer, because in the military, the chief financial officer is has a limited role within the running of the facility, whereas in the, the um, civilian sector, the chief financial officer has a much larger span of control uh, within the organization. And so there are multiple departments that report to the chief financial officer, and Those are complementary to some of the departments that fall under the chief operating officer. And of course the clinical, um, the patient care areas are falling under the nursing side of the house, et cetera.
0: So talk about the scope of your responsibility. Like what kind of departments are you overseeing? What kind of like on a day-to-day basis you mentioned, you're the backup to the CEO, but you know, how do you, what is your portfolio of responsibility?
1: So from a, a direct leadership uh, perspective underneath the chief operating officer is imaging services, which includes, you know, radiology, um, radiation oncology, cath lab, IR. So pretty complex uh, radiology function. The laboratory, uh, environmental services, uh, engineering services or facilities, security, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, security, dietary, and the hospitalists. And so I've got seven departments that report to me, and some of those are departments that I've not had experience before, like dietary or hospitalists or physical therapy and occupational therapy, um, those those were new. So there was some learning curve with that, but you fall back to basic leadership and understanding and find common ground as to where our long-term goals are. And you have smart and very gifted uh, leaders in those departments and it makes everything run a little bit smoother.
0: We had talked, you know, we kind of have rushed up against this a little bit in our conversation so far, but I'm curious, what do you see? So you've been a year, you're a year into your experience, a little, a little more than a year into your experience as a civilian leader, where do you see the biggest differences in military health care versus civilian health care?
1: I would say that there are far more similarities than there are differences. Uh, in, and I hate to put a percentage to it, but just picking one out of the air, I'd say it's 80% exactly the same. Okay. Because in healthcare, as a leader, you're there to take care of people and you're there to take care of staff and ensure that there are no barriers to them being able to do their job. And that's 90% of what I do, is, is give people the resources and make sure that they know that they've got the support that they need. If there's a, a challenge, they know that they can, they can speak up, and we will work towards a solution. The difference is, we, we covered a little bit the, the organizational structure is a little bit different. Um, the army, of course, has a wide uh, variety of acronyms that are not necessarily translating uh, to the civilian sector. Although a lot of colorful phrases that have helped uh, bring some levity to Capital Medical Center, um, we have terms and, and examples that we use in the military that that are different than than uh, in the civilian sector. And so, a lot of my peers find that amusing. And uh, <laughs> so. We've got uh, certainly, uh, a, uh, I would say, a more focused approach towards the business aspect, of course. The military healthcare system does a phenomenal job of tracking metrics and, and data analysis to support uh, efficiencies, and that is not, um, that is not uh, any different from the commercial side of the house or the for-profit world they focus they focus on different metrics and learning the nuances of those metrics and and which ones are leading indicators and which ones are lagging indicators in the for-profit world are a little bit different than those in the military so that that is one of the 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 biggest transition is how do you track the business function and understanding that and being able to be versed in the process counting FTEs full-time equivalence in healthcare is a critical skill. And one FTE does not necessarily equal 40 hours a week because we have eight hour shifts, 10 hour shifts, 12 hour shifts, weekend shifts. And so learning how to calculate staffing models appropriately has really been one of those pieces I've had to dig back into the math and and really work to understand.
0: One of the things that I have heard a lot, and it sounds like it's, you're you're talking about it a bit is is that is that fact that you know in the military we're not as focused on the business side of things in particular my conversations with former military have have, have really rotated around uh or the biggest difference is some of the biggest learning they've had to do is is understanding revenue uh and revenue generation is that a thing that was new for you as well
1: um i think to a point i think we we had a Fairly good understanding of revenue and adhering to a budget, uh, analyzing and tracking the budget expenditures over over the year, projecting next year's budget. Strategic, I think most, uh, at least the senior seventy alphas, did that uh, very well. Otherwise, they wouldn't be senior seventy alphas. And uh, however, the nuances with tracking the budget are are a little bit different because the manner in which you review in a for-profit world is on quarters. And you look at your capital expenditures and your, you have the ability because there is um, capital budgeting to look two, three years in advance or span your expenditures over a calendar year or a physical year. And the approach to look in multi-year bunches is different than the annual approach within the government. And so some of the nuances for and projecting of capital requirements and the detail and focus that we go into uh, building the budget each year, that is much more deliberate on the for-profit or or the uh, civilian side of the house than it was in the military.
0: So I'm curious, I mean, you've talked a li- we've talked a little bit about metrics. I was wondering, what metrics do you Pay the most attention to now in your new role. Um, you kind know, of, you know, what do you look at daily, maybe monthly or quarterly, uh, maybe annually? What what kind of things are you paying attention to?
1: I believe that really, what we look at as as a as a chief operating officer is dependent upon the director. One of the things that I I try and work with my directors on is. What is important? What do we need to look at? And what is the periodicity at which we review them? So what my EVS director and I talk about is going to be very different than what my imaging director or my lab director and I talk about. So we sat down early on and established what are the leading indicators? What are the important pieces to you as a director? What are the important pieces that you as a department use to support the hospital? And we track three to four metrics in each department. There are tons of metrics to look at. But we collectively decide on three as the key ones that we will use as bellwethers to the functionality of that department. And we meet monthly to go over those. And we might temporarily look over a different metric that might be of a particular interest. But those leading indicators that we agree upon at the beginning of the year are what we're going to track throughout the year. And so we, we trend those. We look for progress. We look at putting together plans to affect change if necessary. One thing that I don't track one-on-one with my directors on our meetings is FTEs. However, we talk about that pretty much at least twice a month. To look at and monitor. We see the FTE utilization by department or the hours that are worked by department and the productivity of each department statistic um, Regularly. And so we watch those like a hawk to make sure that we are keeping in line with the budgets and so budgets, as I mentioned before, are very exacting and there they are they are weighted by month. If, if we know that March historically has always been a high volume month, then the expectations on productivity for March are going to be elevated. And so we look at that FTE because in healthcare, the largest expenditure in healthcare is salaries. And so that's one of those things that we watch very closely. In the military healthcare system, that was not something that we looked at other than a big number at the bottom of the budget line. Here, we look at the variance in the salaries by week, by month, by trailing 14 days, and of course, compared year over year.
0: I'm curious, what uh, major initiatives are you responsible for at the hospital? What do you, you know, um, what is it that really is exciting to you that you're working on uh, in your role?
1: I, I think... What I what I look forward to each day is making a positive difference in the organization. So we've got individual departments that report to each one of us as executives, and that's and that's what we do each day is we support them and and we allow those directors the autonomy to go out and do great things. But I think where we're successful as an organization is asking that question: What else can we do? And as a as a Chief operating officer, you're, you're an individual that is not constrained by a particular silo. Our, our success as chief operating officer is breaking down silos and getting different departments that might not necessarily have worked together in the past, but to find mutual uh, common ground to be able to do something better for the organization. A great example of that is we were having uh, feedback from our nursing staff that, you know what? These glucometers just aren't working. And our lab director, um, over eight months, uh, was not able to make any progress on getting the glucometers to populate the result into the electronic health record. Now, that particular lab director uh, chose to depart the organization. We brought in a new lab director. That lab director that came in uh, dove right into this, engaged with our nursing staff to understand the implications of this, engage with our health information uh, technologist to understand the flow of the electronic healthcare record and engage with the contractor that worked and provided the glucometers and was able to figure out voice of the customer and a voice of the business and bring it all together and find the solution that allowed not only for that reading to go directly into the patient record and increase the quality of care but it also ensured that that measurement was being credited to the organization that that work was being done because it wasn't in the past and and it allowed for the lab to gain credit for the work that it was doing and so our ability to see and realize potential as chief operating officer is what We do. It's more of an art form. There's no recipe to go solve this problem or that problem. We've got to be able to figure that out. And that vast experience that many chief operating officers bring to the table allows them to see beyond the daily crises that happen. And what do we need to do in 90 days to put us in a better place? What project can we work on for a year that takes critical or crises off of our daily to-do plate? That that ability to look forward um, is what I think uh, is a great attribute for a chief operating officer. And then it helps the organization itself progress and become smarter, more efficient, better skilled, and allow us to promote the the skill sets that our department level leaders are bringing to the table.
0: You joined at a, a good time. You had a good six months or so before we uh, you got plunged Head first into one of the biggest public health crises in the last hundred years. What's it been like leading in a, uh, during this crisis, leading during a um, period of trying to deal with the coronavirus?
1: This was an interesting time, to say the least. Uh, the, the coronavirus turned health care on its side. First, it was we were scared of the virus. then then we were figuring out the virus and our stances as a society on how to deal with the virus. But as a a hospital, when the patient volumes decreased because elective visits, uh, outpatient visits were all being canceled, that was a difficult uh, time because when all of those patients are canceled and um, the surgeries uh, postponed. Will the hospital volumes dry up? And as I mentioned before, the salaries of the individuals um, are are the most expensive part of healthcare. So what do we do with that? How do we balance the support to the our teammates that that need to be here, but we don't have patients to take care of? And so we we had to look to to the COVID crisis is how to take care of people. What is the best way we can take care of each other from a personal perspective and then still maintain the capabilities and high level of health care that is present within our organization? So we did that um, really from an approach of emergency management. Uh, many, many administrative folks are familiar with the hospital incident command system, uh, which is FEMA's approach to solving, you know, uh, crises or um, you know responses to to catastrophic events like hurricanes. It, uh, the Federal Emergency uh, Management Association (FEMA) they they have an incident command system, and the hospitals support that with the hospital incident command system. And so, really, that that transition to operating in a crisis type of platform allowed us to speed communication. It allowed us to transition information, quickly spread information, react, and reorganize our facility in a new setting to allow us to respond to the many variables that were presented to us, sometimes multiple times a day. Um, When we had personal protective equipment shortages, the mask shortages, or the treatment protocols um, changed. If the aerosolizing procedures were, were um, the list of aerosolizing procedures changed. We were able to quickly utilize that communication mechanism to disseminate that information and share that with healthcare leaders, not just our hospital, but the independent providers that are in our community to help everyone deal with such a, 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 a new and significant change in how we deliver healthcare uh, in a rapid fashion. And so really, we we adjusted to maintaining our um, hospital incident command structure for for nearly 60 days. We're still in it, uh, technically, because we are responding and meeting regularly to talk about the latest updates in the COVID crisis, especially now that we are experiencing a, a peak and surge in, in cases. But we manage things. Uh, through that organizational structure in conjunction with our local emergency management response uh, centers in the community and the state, as well as the, the COVID task force that is present within LifePoint, but basically making sure we've got all the resources and knowledge that we need to ensure the safety of our community members and ensure the quality of care in our hospital.
0: So you mentioned LifePoint has has a Covid Task Task Force, um, how useful was it to you to be part of uh, LifePoint during this crisis?
1: The the support that LifePoint gave to us during the crisis was amazing. In so much that because of the size of the organization, they were able to leverage um, uh, relationships with suppliers, and and because the spread of the disease across the nation. Moved at different speeds. When we were in our most critical timeframe early on, we were able to get and cross level personal protective equipment from one community that was not being hit. They were able to support us with some critical shortages that we were experiencing here and, and vice versa. Because as we started getting bulges of uh, personal protective equipment show up here, the disease was spreading uh, to other communities and we were able to support them in like And so so from from a knowledge perspective of very, very smart individuals uh, at the HSC helping and combing through uh, government um, guidelines, CDC guidelines, the the state uh, guidelines, how do we reopen uh, in a safe manner that supports the community? uh, These stepping points and ability to leverage knowledge and experiences From 90 hospitals to bring about best practices was really uh, helpful for us as an organization, an individual organization nested within a community.
0: So most hospitals shut down for all but emergency services for for a fairly long period of time. Where are you at in terms of recovering now, and and kind of what's what's mostly like back to normal, and 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 or normal new normal maybe and and what are, what are do you see still struggling
1: so our our pathway back to normal was was really a deliberate one when when we were looking in the pacific northwest at reopening we could not move back into doing elective cases until we got the green light and approval from our county and the counties ability to open up was dictated by the phases given by the state. And so we were really waiting for that green light from Thurston County to be able to open back up to elective surgeries, to opening up outpatient appointments. And, and as we did, and as elective surgeries were put back onto the books, we knew that there was going to be some transition um, in getting back to, uh, quote, normal day in a hospital and so we were deliberate in how we opened back up with limited number of appointments. We did fractions the first week, a little bit more the next week, a little bit more the next week, Um, but some of them never got to pre-COVID throughput simply because of the social distancing requirements. Take for example physical therapy. You you, You would be in a physical therapy room, you've got lots of people, that are that are doing their exercises but because of social distancing some of those appointments had to become a little bit longer the appointments had to be staggered we had to look at different ways of doing the modalities and the protection of our staff and the screening process to get into the building had to be looked at so it changed a lot of how we approach it but for for example the operating room we started with with general surgery and some other smaller surgeries before we opened the aperture to take in more complex orthos and spinal cases. So we gradually moved back in to you know, prime the engine um, and, and return to normal. But as we got the surgeries back up, the patient synthesis went up and we brought in more people and, and we were able to get back to a sense of normal what would you say, uh,
0: is there a silver lining in this? Have, has the organization maybe been able to grow in some ways that, and maybe has it, has it broken some old ways of doing business that, you know, now you look, uh, you look at the changes and you're like, wow, we actually, you know, we've actually made progress in a way.
1: I think that the biggest, at least, you know, and this might be obvious, but, Emergency management is an additional duty for many people in healthcare. It's one of those things based on joint commission, you have to have so many emergency management exercises to make sure that you're competent in in running uh, uh, your organization in different situations, emergent situations. And when you do not normally run those emergency management exercises, for multiple days. Well, we ran them for multiple months, and so from that aspect, there are were clearly lessons learned across many facilities. I've talked to peers within LifePoint or friends that are uh, in healthcare and in, in other organizations, but almost all of them utilize their their um, incident command system structure for reporting. and and being able to track information and support to the facility. So those abilities for hospitals to respond in an emergent situation, uh, clearly a lot of lessons learned and a lot of processes were refined to support the hospital. We recently, as a result of of the COVID-19 epidemic, completely rewrote our emergency operations plan, which talks about and guides the facility in transitioning from regular operations to emergency operations. The, the number of lessons learned that you can gain from a you know, three, four, five month long operation uh, were vast. And we put those back into practice. We essentially scrapped the old one and, and, and drafted a new one and actually did a practice exercise and it was it was logical. The staff report from our, our debrief or our feedback afterwards was, it made sense. We need more practice doing it in this new fashion, but there was a shared understanding of why we were operating in a different capacity and how the reports needed to flow and the importance of who needs to be communicated to and and how we exercise that. So, the real silver lining from an emergent management perspective is that there's a lot of practice and, and experience now in these organizations to respond to emergencies. So, you think you, know, you have a, a response to an earthquake or a tornado or other natural disaster, those lessons learned are directly applicable in those, in those emergent situations. Um, but from, from a facility's perspective of, of doing healthcare, we maintain our ability to do healthcare throughout the pandemic. We certainly looked at infectious disease protocols and and how do we treat patients. And I took it, it took a lot of um, uh, review, um, but we had to refresh our knowledge of our organization. How many negative pressure rooms do we have? How many how many uh, HEPA filters do we have to convert some other rooms to be able to treat patients? And it 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 really helped us. Lift the, hit, lift the hood on our organization and understand what true capabilities we had. And honestly, there are a lot of leaders that emerged from this um, and their skill sets and their abilities to, to really further professionally develop themselves and, and, and the potential for larger levels of responsibilities or promotions came through. Um, and so we, we were able to promote some folks as a result of this because they show true leadership. And, and that's always good for the organization to know that we're vested for our, in our people and, and we'll recognize them for great accomplishments.
0: So speaking of leaders and, and leadership, uh, I thought maybe we'd transition to talk a little bit about leadership. So I wanted to ask you, and this is a common question in the military, less so I think in, in the civilian sector what would you say is your leadership philosophy?
1: My leadership philosophy is, is twofold. And one, we are all here to help. People don't come to a healthcare facility, a hospital, because they want to. They are coming to a hospital because they need assistance. It might be the patient that needs assistance. It might be the family member accompanying a patient that is lost in the facility. But everyone that comes to a healthcare facility is looking for assistance. And our ability to support that uh, is what is special about healthcare administration and those in the healthcare industry because we are here to help people get to a better place. And my second piece on that, health, on that leadership philosophy is invest in people. No doubt, healthcare could not be more of a people business. Our, our business is taking care of others, whether that's the treatment of the patient or taking care of them through an episode of care, or maybe it might be a long-term of care. But we are people, and those that are taking care of the patients are people themselves. And so we've got to be able to invest in our folks to be able to become better at their vocation, more skilled, more competent. Or increase their levels of, of um, capabilities and recognize that and help um, each other uh, support and better deliver care to the patient. So when we invest in, in our leaders, we're going to help them get promoted. We're going to help them do more complex procedures we're going to help them find efficiencies to better take care of patients from a quality and safety perspective but as as leaders in healthcare we consistently have to seek out opportunities to invest in our people because they stay with an organization because they trust the organization that they feel professional satisfaction and they're recognized for their accomplishment and money is not a long-term professional satisfier it scratches an itch People stick with an organization because they feel valued and you demonstrate the value, um, by investing in their future and helping them realize their potential.
0: How did you come to that philosophy? Was there a leader that really influenced you that you admired or where did you pick that up? Or was it just something that kind of evolved over your experiences? So I wanted to ask you, uh, um, a question uh, that I like to ask senior leaders, and that is, uh, what is a leadership lesson that you had to learn the hard way? So something that maybe uh, uh, you made a mistake and and had to recover from it, uh, or something that wasn't what you thought it was going to be as a leader.
1: Don't let the plan get in the way of making a difference. And and that, that was a lesson I learned early on in my career um, because we as operators, our job is to make plans. We, uh, we make a plan, we execute the plan, we wanna make it smart and efficient and uh, not impactful to uh, individuals and we want it to be successful. And so as a, as a young lieutenant, we were We were in Kosovo, and we were short uh we were running short on some first aid packs for the entire uh, battalion. so the battalion has you know six hundred people in it and we we ordered them and and they were coming in slowly. They didn't come in in a big bunch, and so my plan was to issue them all out on a regular logistics run on the same day, so we were waiting for them all to come in and then we would push them out. And the, the executive officer or the chief operating officer, if you will, of that battalion found out that we had some on hand and we were not issuing those out to the soldiers. And he came down in, in, a, in a not so subtle way, helped me realize that that was probably not the right way to go about it. The, the take home message from that conversation was if you have a resource, there are people need it more than your shelf. And your job is to enable people to be successful and to get those supplies and resources out to those who need them. And so I've taken that approach and that that hard lesson learned on that day, and I've really worked towards projecting and pushing out those resources to those who need them as quickly as possible. And so I think that's really where it comes to bear in, in an approach to to healthcare is that lesson learned on, on not letting the plan get in the way. It was going to be a beautiful plan on how it was all delivered, make a radio announcement, hey, you should see your first aid kits come today. But you know what? Those first few groups that received their first aid kits first were were happy to get them and they needed them. And that plan although it looked really neat on paper probably was not the right way to go about it and so i look at that right now as 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 a as a leader in healthcare we we always are looking at making plans but are they realistic and are they impactful to the intended audience so if you look at a lean six sigma uh, approach there's always an aspect of voice of the customer and i invite all of my directors to to visit that when they're making recommendations what is the voice of the customer who are you supporting and, and is this right for them can we do it faster because it sounds like they need it and asking those questions and keeping that perspective of who are we supporting has been very helpful and whenever you're putting the patient first or you whenever you're putting the customer or your department or the individual that you're supporting first, you really can't go wrong.
0: It sounds like that EXO, maybe in his not so unsubtle way did help you out uh, and, and has given you, gave you some kind of career changing advice. What advice do you find yourself giving young leaders most often?
1: As I was working on, our strategic plan for 2021, I had a realization, and and it and it revolved around how do we get people to embrace this. We were talking earlier about accountability and ownership, but how do we foster this in the culture? And and I don't think there's one tried and true measure to drive employee engagement and ownership and accountability. And I was trying to figure out what it is that we can do. I've heard uh, leaders um, say that we we want our junior leaders to act on an intent or an implied task, meaning I don't need to explicitly tell you to do something. You should understand that this needs to be done and then go forth and go do it. But you're not always going to have somebody there to be able to tell you to do this or this is the priority. So in the absence of of opportunities that are providing that clear guidance forward, how do you operate when there is not clear guidance? And it resonated with me as I was working the strategy, that's where it comes from. Your culture is driven by your mission, vision, and values and what you stand for. And, And I wrote this down and I have a sticky note on my computer monitor and and it talks about mission and vision and it says the mission speaks to the work at hand how do we go about doing this or that this is what we're going to do but you often hear companies what is your mission statement what is your mission statement you don't hear the vision statement covered as frequently as you do the mission statement but for me as a leader i really rely upon that vision statement because i believe the vision statement speaks to your culture. And your culture will give the parameters to make a decision in the absence of guidance. And so without a clear vision, we're not gonna be a clear culture. And so when we look at our mission, we're looking at how do we do our daily work, but our vision speaking to culture shapes who we are and who we want to be in the future.
0: I like that. Well, let me, Chris, let me, let me ask you a, one closing question. And, and, and I think, you know, I teach mostly young undergrads these days um, who are uh, hoping to go into healthcare administration. So what would you, ha- what advice would you have for these early careerists, these, you know, young 22 year olds who are heading out into the world, perhaps into the world of, of uh, COVID-19, right? Um, what advice would you have for them as they launch on their careers?
1: My advice would be to build perspective. And perspective uh, can be handled in many ways. It's You're certainly gaining a big perspective when you go through advanced learning in school and graduate school. You're getting the book answer. And that book answer, although important, is not always how it's going to be executed when you get into a, a job or or a residency. There's always other things that influence that, but your perspective allows you to get clarity of mind and to see more than just the problem at hand. But you'll gain that perspective through affiliations with professional organizations, networking, continuing to educate yourself, whether you get a Lean Six Sigma um, certification. Every healthcare administrator has to be good at solving problems. So whether you use Lean Six Sigma, FMEA, root cause analysis, pick your pick your process improvement platform, but learn one and learn it well, because you will rely upon that for the entirety of your healthcare career, because there is always a crisis going on. So my first bit of advice is to get that perspective and, and build that through volunteering, doing hard jobs, um, and talking with people that have been there and done that. You'll find that is those folks that have been around the block are happy to share experiences so that you don't have to go through those same challenges. You can you can you can do that through networking. You can do that through um, uh, meet and greets with ACHE or Hims or pick your professional organization. But network, share stories, gain information, but figure out a process improvement platform that you can internalize and then be able to execute.
0: That's great advice, Chris. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I appreciate it.
1: I'm happy to do it. And if there's anything I can do to be of assistance, either for, for you or to be that mentor or um, person to share uh, stories or um, questions, I'm happy to do it.
0: You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.